Only that August, the band had left Liverpool a virtual embarrassment. Their playing was haphazard, their direction uncharted. It had been off to Hamburg, and then, afterward, the bleak likelihood of an apprenticeship on the Liverpool docks, a clerk's position at the Cotton Exchange, or British Rail, or rivet duty at one of the automobile plants sprouting in the suburbs. No doubt about it, after Germany, there would be no further high life. But Hamburg had thrown them all a powerful curve. Their shows took on an excitement that bordered on anarchy. Frustrated by the feeble drone that English rock and roll bands had settled into, they exploited their notoriety as a gang of scruffs and pumped up the volume. Then, just as mercurially, it all came crashing down. The Hamburg gig had ended in tumultuous disarray, with the boys being deported in an unbecoming fashion. For two weeks they bummed around Liverpool, sad and aimless, avoiding one another like animals forced to share a cage in a zoo. It was in the midst of this deepening depression that John and Pete turned up together at the tiny Jacaranda coffee bar. They had come for a coffee and, by chance, encountered Bob Wooler, a nappy, courtly man of twenty-eight, with no youth left to him aside from a passion for popular music. No one nurtured the Liverpool rock and roll community more ably than Wooler a failed songwriter. All afternoon, Lennon and Bess sat sulking and whined to Wooler about their professional situation. They wanted to work again, badly, anything. He had to help them, he just had to. They insisted. The only event of significance was the upcoming Christmas dance at Litherland Town Hall. Wooler called promoter Brian Kelly from the Jacaranda's kitchen. They're fantastic, he assured Kelly. Could you possibly put them on as an extra? Like I said, they've been to Hamburg. Wooler cast an uneasy eye over his shoulder at the vigilant boys, their faces slipping in and out of the late afternoon shadows. Hamburg had aged them, he thought. Best, the taller of the two, was bristled-haired, with a ghostly transparency in his eyes and the type of soft, matinee-idle features that could quicken a girl's pulse. Lennon, although a few inches shorter, seemed more in command by the hard glare he threw in the pitch of his face, set in an expression of thin-lipped satisfaction. Wooler and Kelly went at it until they had brokered an acceptable deal. At Litherland, the hall was full, framed in hazy silhouette. Not a fleet of drunken sailors like in Hamburg, but local teenagers, many of whom they had gone to school with. Bob Wooler crooned into an open mic. And now, everybody, the band you've been waiting for. Direct from Hamburg. But before he got their name out, Paul McCartney jumped the gun, and in a raw, shrill burst as the curtain swung open, hollered, I'm gonna tell Aunt Mary about Uncle John. He said he had the misery, but he got a lot of fun. Oh, baby. The pounding came in rhythmic waves, and once it started, it did not stop. It was convulsive, ugly frightening and visceral in the way it touched off frenzy in the crowd. The band turned up the juice and tore into a wild jam, drawing upon stage antics they devised while in Germany, they twisted and jerked their bodies with indignant energy. John and George proceeded to lunge around like snapping dogs and stomp loudly on the bandstand in time to the music. Everyone was used to bands that patterned themselves after Cliff Richard and the Shadows, England's top rock and roll act and practitioners of smooth, carefully tended choreography. This band was a beast of a different nature. When John Lennon stepped to the mic and challenged the crowd to get your knickers down, 
the audience, in a state of unconscious, indiscriminate euphoria, screamed and raised their arms in delight. The house erupted in hysteria as the band concluded its half-hour set with a rousing version of What I Say, in which Paul McCartney jackknifed through the crowd, whipping the kids into rapturous confrontation. The band had somehow squeezed every nerve of the local rock and roll scene, and that scene would never be the same. In the wall of grinding sound and the veil of black leather, they had staked their claim to history. And in that instant, they had become the Beatles. Part 1. Mercy A Proper Upbringing Water. Those who were drawn to it, the seafarers, the merchants and craftsmen who plied goods from the north and midlands, and the dockhands and labourers, allowed the mystery of the Mersey to lay hold of their imagination. The river, with its dark, brooding magnetism, drove the city. The people saw the seaport as a threshold on the horizon. Beyond it, an invisible world beckoned. Liverpool considered itself the gateway to the British Empire for its mastery of imperial trade, and yet to the rest of the country, especially those living in Tweedy London, Liverpool was an anglicised Siberia, desolate, insular, meaningless, hard-working, dressed darkly and forgotten. The prejudice was no secret, and it made those men and women of the North fierce and intimate. People from Liverpool called themselves Scousers, giving their common kinship and exalted magic. The term was derived from the nautical lobscouse, a sailor's dish consisting of meat stewed with vegetables and a ship's biscuit. Scousers have a fierce local patriotism, says Bill Harry, founder of the local rock and roll weekly Merseybeat. He grew up in the centre of town at the same time as the Beatles. It's like belonging to your own country. A real Scouser believes he is fighting everybody else in the world and that everyone is against him, especially Londoners. He defends this position eloquently with his fists. Like many seaside boys, the four young men who would form the Beatles were absurdly modest, considering the outlet water provided. To be the best band in Liverpool was all they ever wanted. The Mersey was their only river. Two hundred years before the Beatles crossed the water to take America by storm, the ships of Liverpool rode the seas in service to the upstart colonies whose landowners coveted burly African slaves. The slave trade was finally abolished in 1807, and cotton brought respectability to Liverpool. In nearby Manchester, the manufacture of cloth developed at an enormous rate. But the water was dominant, and while its infinite resource steered opportunity toward the seaport, it also engulfed her. From 1845 to 1849, nearly 50,000 Irish refugees thronged into Liverpool, causing near-civic collapse. The potato famine forced entire villages from their homes and deposited wave after wave of its victims onto the Merseyside docks. In the spring of 1932, when Mimi Stanley was 26 years old, a short but powerfully built dairy farmer named George Smith, who delivered raw milk each morning, began courting her with a vengeance. The courtship dragged on this way for almost seven years, until finally George Smith delivered an ultimatum along with the milk. Look here, I've had enough of you. Either marry me or nothing at all. 
The marriage to a relatively commonplace and unassuming man might have had more of a disruptive effect on the Stanley family were it not for another more upheaving union. Six months earlier, on December the 3rd, 1938, Julia, Mimi's younger sister, stunned her father when she arrived home after a date with a long-time boyfriend and announced, There, I've married him, waving a license as proof. It was only reluctantly, after her father threatened her with expulsion if she cohabited with a lover, that she proposed to and married the dapper young man with a perfect profile and nimble spirit named Freddie Lennon. If John Lennon romanticized the memory of his mother, Julia, he took an altogether opposite view of his father. Freddie Lennon remained a vague shadow figure, an outcast, throughout John's life. I soon forgot my father. It was like he was dead. The Stanleys did a good job helping to put Freddie Lennon to rest. Julia's father considered him below their station, certainly not middle class, and Mimi later said that we knew he would be no use to anyone, certainly not our Julia. At first glance, Freddie and Julia seemed like an improbable pair, but from the moment they met they were inseparable. Both tireless dreamers, they spent long days walking around Liverpool, hatching improbable schemes. They would open a shop, a pub, a cafe, a club, where they'd take turns performing, Julia cracking one-liners, Freddie singing and playing the banjo. By January 1940, Julia had become pregnant. The war arrived early on Liverpool's front doorstep. Entire neighbourhoods were destroyed in the initial airstrikes that pounded the city. Families would wake to find their streets just gone. Menlove Avenue, where Mimi and George had bought a handsome semi-detached house, suffered tremendous damage.